Hello, and welcome to Business Talk, brought to you by Business West and sponsored by People's Bank. Hi, I'm Chris Kellogg from the Kellogg Crew Morning Show on 94.7 WMAS. And I'd like to introduce the host of this week's episode. He's the editor of Business West. Here's Joe Bednar. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Business Talk. We have another great show for you today. But first, we have this important message from our sponsor, People's Bank. Thank you for listening to the Business Talk podcast, sponsored by People's Bank, bringing you the best in business experts, entrepreneurs, and evangelists. Make Business Talk your innovation break for ideas and inspiration. People's Bank, where commercial banking can fuel your growth and make work life easier. Member FDIC, DIF equal housing lender. Bank at peoples.com slash business. Okay, we're back. And as promised, we have a great show for you today. Our guest is Craig Delapena, Executive Director of the Norwatic Network and a broker with the Murphy's Realtors in Florence. Happy to have you here on Business Talk. Thank you, Joe. Looking forward to it. Um, yeah, you've got a really intriguing story. Uh, you've been uh, working on the railroad, so to speak, for a long time. Um, before we get into the Norwatic Network and the exciting projects happening there and what's happening in rail trails in, in Massachusetts, uh, take me uh, through your story of, of how you began working in the railroad industry a, a few decades ago and how you eventually, I guess, blazed your own path in the realm of real estate and rail trails. Yes, it's a, um, it was an interesting journey. Uh, my brother-in-law, eons ago, was the foreman at a, a lumber transload facility, and he brought me on board to help on the team there. And and it was like a fit. You know, I, I was hired by the railroad um, to help plan the startup and manage the operations of several large transloading facilities and went into marketing. And we, uh, we were cooking. We had set up seven big transloads over the years. I have a background in railroad history. And uh, one of my customers was a guy who used to take obsolete topo maps and bring bring them into our facility. We'd send them out to be converted into envelopes and stationery based on topo maps. And I had a book on my desk called The Lost Railroads of New England. And he picked it up and he said, you know, I'd love to publish something like this. This is uh, my my main line of business is not these old topo maps. It's it's uh, I'm a publisher of outdoor recreational titles and guidebooks in in New England. And so he contracted with me to write a book about old rail lines and their history of the and them being converted to rails to trails projects. Mm-hmm. And I, so that was sort of like a transition into a new world for me. But I've written three books on that topic, and that's how it all started. And uh, you, um, um, I, was, I was reading a, a little bit of your bio. In the late, late 1990s, you were hired by um, uh, the Rails to Trails Conservancy. What, mm-hmm. what is that, and how did that kind of um, – tell me about a little about your transition into uh, getting involved in, 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 in rail trails. Well, after the first book came out, it was my books were all about the history and highly detailed all the history you'd find along the way in railroad archaeology. And, and I was put under contract to do two more books. So we're going out all the time and all these places, literally hundreds of places in the eight Northeast states. And, and as I said, it was all about the history. But then we started to hear where the railroad I used to work for, there was pushback and angst and upsetness in communities that were uh, considering putting the trail, converting from the dead railroad into a linear park and and getting involved in the politics, I was compelled to because I was, by de fact, uh, I was a, an expert on on uh, what happens when you convert a trail, uh, convert a dead railroad into a, a trail. Mm. 
And so uh, the, one of the railroads that our company owned was uh, uh, defunct in Southampton, Massachusetts, and they were having a turmoil about should they convert that trail. And I went to the last town meeting and I watched them vote it down. And I was shocked and they did. And and so uh, I started speaking on the subject and uh, Rails to Trails Conservancy heard about what I was doing, uh, building friends groups and talking through these issues with communities. And they hired me to be the point person in the Northeast where I would uh, literally parachute into the wars, so to speak, mm-hmm. and uh, convert uh, or help help steer the conversation to be um, something beneficial and, and 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 not so dramatic and you know passionate. But it was um, I've been involved in all the rail trail wars all these years later. I worked for them for like seven years, and then uh, I became a realtor specifically because all the folks opposed I met over the years, they were always fervently opposed to the trail, number one, because they felt it would devalue their property and they'd be upside down and never be able to sell their house. And so I became a realtor, specializing in the sale of houses near rail trails. I'm the first realtor in the United States with that. And and so I've been in the background. I've resurrected every project that was voted down. I went back in 10 years later. And now I'm reassembling the longest dead railroad in New England from Boston to Northampton. Uh, we have a 501c3 that was created 20 years ago to do little betterments along the Nawatic Trail, which is the westernmost section of this 100-mile trail. And uh, we're now, just just the other day, we put under contract another mile and a half. Uh, there's, there's so much going on on here that... Uh, you know, we can I can delve into that if you want, Joe. But it's it's this is within 150 miles of where I'm sitting here in my real estate office in Florence, is the densest network of dead steam railroad corridor in North America, and they did not go to coal mine branch lines or other obscure extraction industries. This network went to places with these huge antediluvian mill complexes and what we call today the gateway cities. And this is a way to create a renaissance in places. It happens all over the United States. And we're sort of late coming to this sort of renaissance. And and but it's about to happen here. This this trail will get built and it's going to be very impactful. There's uh there's over 200 projects underway within 150 miles where I'm sitting right now. So, it, so it's the challenge of in, in 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 bringing this to life. Is is it just the fact that there's so many different land over landowners and municipalities and all kinds of entities that are involved in sort of? Um, I mean, I mean, what are some of those those challenges? Well, if we just circle in on Massachusetts here. Massachusetts is it, it's very difficult to do things. There's number one, most states in the United States who are doing these projects, and all states are doing them. Most states have counties. And there's a there's a level of county capacity that we don't see in Massachusetts. There are no real de facto counties, just for jails and and for land record keeping, of course. But but there's no transportation department to county level or uh, or or even uh, planning. It's just it's just non-existent. And so in Massachusetts, it's usually a top-down driven process, top-down the state. And then 351 cities and towns, and so it's it's very difficult to do things. Um, and in 
up until 2017, there were a lot of projects, you know, kind of petering along, but they weren't really seen with a lot of oomph, let's say, from the top, from the governor's office. And but now, uh, since Charlie Baker came in, 19, in 2017, he changed things around. He created a trails team inside his suite of offices made up of uh, staffers from mid-level or higher above staffers that met in his suite of offices, not in their silos, let's say. They met in his offices, and either him or the lieutenant governor would peek in on the meetings and they would take down the silos between the three or four agencies that had a role in developing trails. That has accelerated things, so much so that the 100-mile trail that we're putting together here is finally starting to see some traction. Um, it's been a 40-year journey so far. We're now at 59 miles open. In two years, we'll be at 75 miles open of this 100-mile trail. And well, what does that mean? Well, it means that DOT knows that the, the easy, low-hanging fruit of, of trail development, the, the cheaper projects to fund, the things where there's not many problems, those are running out of we're running out of projects like that. To get beyond 75 miles to 104 miles will mean that there's going to be several bridges that need to be replaced that were scrapped out years ago. There's uh, complicated land ownership issues. There's corridor that was washed away in a hurricane of 38. There's on and on and on. But during the pandemic, DOT commissioned a survey or an investigation of getting beyond 75 miles. Uh, these are not contiguous 75 miles. It's in different sections that are open. But uh, they commissioned a, a report, and it showed that it can be done but it's going to be complicated and probably expensive. Probably, I'll just guess and say $150 million. And, and they, and they said to me that we're not uh, going to, we're not going to really reassemble that unless someone, hopefully me, they were thinking <laughs> would commission a survey or a report to, uh, to find out how much it would be worth. They never asked the question, well, what would a hundred mile trail be worth in Massachusetts, one that connected with about 17 or 18 others. And uh, there was a report done like that about 10 years ago in, in New York that showed the Erie Canal Trail, one trail, was worth $250 million a year to New York. That so stunned the governor of New York that he, uh, that he commissioned DOT to build another 400 miles in four years throughout the state. And so we commissioned a report. We put out an RFP, we, the Nowatic Network, put out an RFP a couple of years, or excuse me, last, last winter. We chose a consultant late winter and through the spring, and they've been working on it and just came out a few weeks ago. Our trail, if it gets completed, would be worth uh, $200 million a year. It would be four to five million users a year. Over half the state's population was going to was going to be living within a few miles of it. Just in Worcester County, which is considered to be sort of like flyover country in Massachusetts, very small rural towns, there's going to be nine hundred thousand visitors there. There's going to be five hundred thousand overnight visitors. 
The wow. third, you know, Massachusetts' third largest industry is tourism. And there's not really a good long distance safe biking thing that's notable uh, with, with a lot of history. We love history. And so reassembling this corridor will be a winner. And, and that's, that's where we are today. The report just came out a few weeks ago and it's, it's starting to gain traction inside the state house. You're listening to Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West and sponsored by People's Bank. We're talking today with Craig Delapena, Executive Director of the Norwatic Network. Um, I did I did read um, a little bit about that report. We actually um, published a story on it in our, our last issue of Business West. And when you talk about the, um, um, the, the the economic impact, I mean, what specifically goes into those numbers? Is it people kind of using the trail and accessing um, uh, points along it and in as you said, kind of generating tourism in, in individual uh, communities? Yes, it's the, um, it is the tourism factor that, that creates the, the, the big impact. And it's not so much just if somebody's just going to bike from Boston to Northampton and crank out the miles in one day. <laughs> that isn't really the, 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 the standard that produces the economic impact. What happens is when you have families going maybe – 30 miles a day and exploring things along the way and staying in tenting campgrounds or better yet, bed and breakfasts along the way uh, or small hotels that will, that will drive impact. It, um, it really quadruples the amount of dollars per visit. And, and, and a lot of several of the places on this corridor are, we know, we know gateway cities in Massachusetts, the big, industrial centers that they're now getting reinvested in after several generations of not being invested in. But there's places along this corridor that are forgotten, you know, that are uh, small towns and a little bit on the threadbare side. And and having people come in to visit their town and maybe uh, would would coax a, a uh, entrepreneur to set up a restaurant or some kind of store or some kind of tour, perhaps, and lead tours of their community. And, and that sort of like younger generation investment into communities like that is what's usually missing. And this does spur that sort of redevelopment. It happens elsewhere in the United States, but we haven't had a long enough trail to, to sort of break into that new model of longer distance trails and what happens. Mm. The, um, uh, the other factor we'd um, uh, talked about earlier, the, uh, the, there's greater awareness these days of climate change. There's a, I know there's a, there's a health and wellness aspect to this that kind of goes along with the, with the, um, the recreational aspect. How, how do you see all that working together as sort of a, you know, sort of a societal benefit? Well, the, uh, I think it's going to be more impactful than you can just easily identify here. Being, having people, uh, bike across the state without, or just coming just from the point of view of the vast majority of the population of Massachusetts lives, let's say inside 495. And this will connect number of trails that are already built or under development inside that network. This will directly connect to it. So literally people will be able to come out of their neighborhood in over a dozen places that connects directly with this mm. by bike being away from cars and they will be able to take multi-day journeys. And, and if we can have a large portion of our 
tourism become bike-borne in a way that they don't have to take cars to get to it, that's going to be a winner for climate. And the uh, and and also I mentioned tourism being the third largest industry in Massachusetts, but also the Massachusetts I think is the sixth top state in the union for uh, visits from European visitors, and it would be prudent for us to. You know, what, what do you Europeans know? They're very in tune with bicycling in their country. And for them to just hop off an airplane, maybe more fuel efficient airplanes in the future, but just to come and then go biking on multi-day journeys here, that is going to be impactful as well. And, and you know, the, like the Cape Cod Rail Trail, when that was built back 50 years ago, they knew, they, the state government knew that people would take that idea back to their own hometown. And that's how all this trail movement got started here in Massachusetts because of people's experience on Cape Cod. And that will make for more uh, climate-centric or less less auto-centric communities at large. So, You've, um, um, you've given uh, more than 1,200 lectures in 21 states mm-hmm. on, on this topic and, and the, and the the connection of rail to trail conversions to things like land preservation, smart growth, placemaking, residential real estate values. So yep. clearly this is something you're passionate about on a, on a national that that can be replicated on a national level and in, 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 in across the U S right. Right. I think we're on a cusp of something big here. It, it wasn't even climate talking about this. It was before we went into the great recession, there was sort of a divide happening where you probably heard of WalkScore, W-A-L-K-S-C-O-R-E, WalkScore.com, is a way to find a more walkable community. And the way they do that is to, um, you plug in any address into the WalkScore search panel, and up pops a Google map, and then it'll start populating in what is nearby worth walking to. You know, my neighborhood here in Florence, we have the Pie Bar, Florence Diner, several banks and and uh, lawyers' offices and other places that are worth walking to. And so if you're looking for a new house, you're looking, you're, the younger generation are plugging in walk score for places they might consider. They already know their number. The higher the walkability, the more the, the numerical value goes up. In the hinterlands place, it might be a low number. Manhattan would be near 100. But uh, people are wanting to have a new searchable, walkable neighborhood. And where they grew up in the suburban tract layout, cul-de-sac layouts, are typically not where they want to live. Now we're in a massive seller's market, which which means there's a shortage of things to buy. So they're sort of overlooking the low walk scores on those. But when we do come back to a balanced place, places with grid pattern streets, sidewalks, porches, with things worth walking to nearby, those are going to become the most valuable neighborhoods. So the the the, this departing of the suburban layout is going to continue. We lived in Agawam for 12 years. Agawam's got a couple of claims to fame, lowest zip code in the country, mm-hmm. only city in the Mass in Commonwealth of Massachusetts has no downtown, and it's the lowest average walk score in the state as well. And so these places are going to be remade slowly, but 
because they can't sustain um, living in a suburban locale. It's it's it's, it's probably not going to be as desirable as is has been in the seller's market. But I believe that the future lies in the antique places with the with the natural grid patterns, streets, sidewalks, porches. Usually that might mean gateway cities that are coming back to life and being reinvested in. Most affordable places are there now, too. You know, when I write stories, and not just about you know, rail trails, but just uh, I, just real estate stories, construction stories, and I talk to municipal leaders, it is, is it gratifying to you to see that there's so much uh, more talk these days being placed on walkable downtowns and just a yes. walkable region? Yes. I grew up in Holyoke when Holyoke was the wealthiest place in Western New England. And then the wheels fell off. It is now coming back to life. There's been over $250 million of reinvestment in Holyoke. There's a good story for you sometime, Joe. Talk about the canal walk in Holyoke, the dead industrial trackage, now rail trail, now a linear park that has caused $250 plus million reinvestment into the district down there. And it's not even finished. The, rail, the, the, the canal walk is even finished. And there's there's a new generation coming into Holyoke, and uh, and it's happening in all the gateway cities. It's not mm. in isolation here. All of them, they're all coming back to life. So it's future. I'll uh, I'll close on this note. Um, if if someone is listening to this or reading about rail trails and are intrigued, um, say I want I want to get involved in efforts to you know, um, to, to kind of achieve this. How do people get involved in this in this issue? Well, they could um, go to masscentralrailtrail.org and see we have a live interactive map on there. Uh, they can sign up for my news newsletter uh, there or nowaticnetwork.org. Those are my two primary sites. Uh, they can reach me through my real estate practice at northamptonrealtor.com, northamptonrealtor.com. And, um, you know, I'd love to chat with people about this subject and love to uh, – Hear from some entrepreneurs. I have an e-newsletter that goes out to between twelve and 15,000 people a month mm. about this topic. And we're going to actually start branching out a little bit here. I have never really talked about my real estate practice on it, but we're going to be getting some new listings here shortly that are going to be near the trail. And so I'm going to put them in my newsletter and sort of just, you know, cast it out there. And so I love, I love doing this. This is, uh, you know, They'll never put on my gravestone that I sold houses. <laughs> and but I'm in the background of all the rail to trail stuff when it was said it would never happen. Matter of fact, next week, next week, the 93 mile trail from Swanton, Vermont to St. Johnsbury across the top of Vermont, a project I was deeply involved in for the last 20 years, it's opening, completely open. The governor is going to be at the ribbon cutting. And he's biking all the way, 93 miles wow. from Swanton to St. Johnsbury, Vermont. So, and Holyoke, there's a tie-in. It was, it was, the land there was assembled by a company based in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, eons ago. And it became the first planned industrial city in the United States. And so there's a little tie-in to Holyoke there. Well, I hope people do um, take the time to, 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 
check out the uh, resources you mentioned and, and learn more about this. That's all the time we have for today. Um, thanks, Craig, for spending a few minutes with me this morning to talk about, uh, I guess, your work as a literal trailblazer. Yes. <laughs> Troublemaker. <So. laughs> and thanks to all of you for tuning into Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West and sponsored by People's Bank. I'm Joe Bednar, the editor of Business West, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.